Hey everybody, it's Mike. Welcome or welcome back to the Revision Church Podcast. While you're here, make sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel and download the Revision app, which is actually the best way to get access to new content and share it with friends. You can get the app by texting Revision App to 77977. Thanks for listening today. My hope is that this message will be helpful for you and would inspire you to take the next step on your faith journey. So a couple weeks ago, I had my first third grade basketball practice. My brother and I are coaching a team with my twins, my nephew, and my cousin's kid. So it's a team with the power of four Howards on it. And in case you're wondering how much power that is, after watching one practice, I'm guessing it's not enough power to win a game of third grade basketball. I can tell you that much. But anyways, as I was headed out the door to coach it up, I couldn't find my shoes, so I grabbed my son Jimmy's basketball shoes. He's got some bright pink Nike Giannis's, and as I was slipping them on, it brought me back to my eighth grade year and the basketball shoes I just had to have for that season. The year was 2010-ish. <coughs> Don't worry about it. It totally wasn't in the 1900s or anything. Just stop thinking about it. But Nike released, probably the coolest shoe ever created up to that point in human history, the Nike Air Adjust Force. It came with a removable strap around the outside that you could like change the colors on, so it could be whatever color you wanted, you could mix and match them, just a sick shoe. And I told my dad I needed it, because I knew if I could just get the Nike Air Adjust Force with my team colors, I would be truly happy. But my dad told me he was pretty sure any shoe that came with his own bra wouldn't actually make me happy because dads are stupid and they don't know anything. So I went to work on my mom and I finally broke them down and I got the shoes. Then I played my first game in them. And I was just so pumped, but something happened. The team we were playing decided to double team our star player and basically dare me to shoot. So my coach said, Mike, they're giving you that shot from the elbow. Just go for it. And I went for it a few times and I made it none of those times. And then I was, I was dribbling the ball back up the court, kind of hoping they'd make a mistake on defense, or at least my defender would come out to defend me so I could blow by him to the hoop. I heard their coach yell out, hey, let number three keep shooting, which is a huge confidence booster for a 13-year-old for sure. But I was wide open, so I did keep shooting, and I finished the day 0 for 10. And I... I honestly, to this day, I have no idea why, it's a head scratcher, but all of a sudden, the shoes that I just knew would make me happy didn't make me happy anymore, because clearly they were broken, stupid shoes. It was very frustrating, and I, I didn't play basketball again after that year, which is probably shocking to you guys. You're like, Mike, every time we see you, you look so tall, but it's a mirage. The stage adds two feet, so well, the, shoes, the shoes didn't make me happy. Undaunted, though, I moved right on to the next thing I thought might do the trick. And after that thing failed, I moved on to the next one, and then the next one, and then the next one. And I know I'm not the only one of us who's been there. Like, we just become convinced there's something out there that will make us finally fully happy once we grab hold of it, and then we get it, and we still aren't happy. And so we convince ourselves, even though that one didn't work, or the other one before that, or the one before that, the next thing definitely will, so we got to go chase it. You know, we're in a series right now called Burn the Ships, where we're talking about some of the things we need to let go of in order to move forward. As we kick off a brand new year in 2024, we have a fresh opportunity to move from where we are to where we want to be, from who we are to who God made us to be. We have this chance to set sail for a new world and write a better story for ourselves and the people around us. But the truth is, as long as the ships that brought us to this point remain ready to sail, we'll always have the option of retreat. We'll always be tempted to turn around and go back and settle for something less than the dreams God's placed inside us. 
And making progress is hard, always. So if we're gonna do it, we gotta burn some ships. And this morning, I wanna talk about burning the ship called happiness. And let me clarify that real quick. I did not mean we gotta get rid of happiness if we're ever gonna move forward. And I do not mean there's not real joy, happiness, and beauty in the futures that lie ahead. That's not only ridiculous, it's, it's patently untrue. However, we live in the middle of a culture that has a warped view of how happiness happens. Like our society believes it's a goal and not a byproduct. It's an aim and an end in itself rather than the result of a life lived fully according to the design of the designer. And so we aim our lives toward getting happiness. We chase it at all costs and we feel good about chasing whatever we think will bring happiness to our lives because we know for a fact God just wants us to be happy. Doesn't he? That's what our world says. Like, God just wants me to be happy. And if we're gut-level honest with each other, that's a ship we have all been taking a ride on that's brought us to the place we are now. One that's determined in some ways the course and direction of our lives. But here's what I want us to know. The idea that God just wants you to be happy is a half-truth. And I don't know, some of you hear that, you're probably nervous that I said it's half-true because you grew up in the church, like me, and you've heard plenty of times, God wants you to be holy, not happy. And usually the person who said it looked very unhappy, so you could tell that they meant it. And the implication is that you like, can't be both. You can be holy or happy, but they're mutually exclusive, so pick one. And maybe some of you at one point believed that, and that's why you bailed on the church a long time ago. And maybe for some of you, it's why you're nervous to ever walk into a church, because you got hurt by a toxic atmosphere of like joyless, soulless rule-following. But wherever the idea that holiness and happiness are like at odds with one another comes from, it's not from God or from his word. The Bible constantly tells us to rejoice, to celebrate, to delight, to take joy. Like holiness and happiness are actually intimately tied together. But the issue is the ship our culture sails on, the one it believes will take us to true happiness, isn't headed in the right direction. It doesn't deliver. It just leaves us empty again and again and again. And we've all experienced it because that ship is convinced it has to head away from holiness in order to get where it wants to go. But we got to burn that ship in order to claim the lives we want, because the truth is holiness and happiness are a package deal. Make no mistake, you guys. God created you with an extraordinary capacity for happiness on purpose. And something is meant to fill that capacity up. The problem is most of us have no idea what that something is, even though we're convinced we do. That's where the mistruth and the incredible danger of believing God just wants us to be happy comes in. Because we end up in our minds translating that as, God just wants me to do whatever I want. Hey, how could he want anything else? God, of course, just wants me to do whatever I want to do. The philosopher Voltaire once wrote, God created man in his own image, and now man is returning the favor. Like all of us, somewhere inside desperately want a God who reflects our desires and just rubber stamps them. And so we build this theology of happiness in our minds that assumes three things. Number one, whatever I think will make me happy must be right. Number two, discomfort, suffering, risk, inconvenience, obstacles, those must never be God's will because they don't make me very happy. And number three, comfort, pleasure, and wealth are the ultimate goal of life because that's the stuff that makes us happy, right? Here's the conundrum, though. We have no idea what actually makes us happy. And I realize that might seem presumptuous or offensive even. Like, what does that bald guy on the screen think he's talking about? That I don't know what will make me happy, but he does. I get it. Bear with me for a minute, though. 
because I'm not wrong and here's how I know. If you've been chasing happiness, and you have, like maybe one or two of you watching are struggling with self-harm and self-loathing, and that's a serious issue, but a separate one. But like 99 to 100% of us have been pursuing happiness with a fair amount of dedication for a long time. All right, so if you've been chasing happiness and you know what will make you happy, then you should be happy pretty much all the time. If you're not, then I'm right. You don't actually know what will make you happy, and neither do I. And before we get too upset about that, let's just acknowledge like every time we open up our computer screens, turn on our radios or our TVs, there are all kinds of people making very good money selling us on the idea that they know what will really make us happy. And, and every single one of us has fallen for that one or two hundred times. And yet we're, we're still not happy. We're still searching for it. Like if you go to Google and you type in, how can I be happy and rich are going to be two of the top results. I know that for a fact because the other day I was searching for how can I become a professional model and I discovered it. Just trying to keep my career options open. But um, Sorry, it was hard to say that with a straight face. Really though, that, like Google knows that that's what we're searching for. And we live in a world that's desperate for us, that's hoping for happiness and most of us have believed at some point there was a pair of shoes or a shirt or a car, or a phone, or a house that would make us happy, but it never, ever lasts. Here's why. True happiness is always associated with a who, not a what. If it was about a what, then I could get that, and it wouldn't matter how you treated me, because I would have my happy what. But a happy what always leads to a happy what else. I promise you this is true. You were just as happy with your old phone on the day you got it brand new, as you were with your new phone on the day you got it. And if an aging what deflates your happiness, like if over time you're not as happy with that thing, that thing never really made you happy. In fact, you were never really happy at all. You were just successfully marketed to. But that's how it works in our culture, which makes it all the more striking to go to impoverished parts of the globe. I've been in some of the poorest parts of the Western Hemisphere, in Mexico and Haiti, and as you travel around and talk to people, you can't help but ask the question, like, how can they be so happy when they're nothing? Nothing. And the answer is, happiness isn't tied to things. Think about it this way. Every parent knows it's true. As a parent, you are never happier than your most unhappy child. It's just very difficult to be happier than your most unhappy kid. Same with marriage. Husbands are never happier than their most unhappy wife, which is, I think, a brilliant argument against polygamy. Like, you want a few more of these? That's good. You're just never happier than your spouse or your kid. Why? Because real happiness is tied to a who, not a what. And the last bit of evidence, you don't have to believe I'm onto something right now, but you will by the end of your life, and you can save yourself a lot of pain, frustration, and wasted time by realizing this sooner rather than later. When your life is coming to a close, if you have regrets, I promise you they will be relational regrets, not possessional regrets. Like, oh, if I could just go back and do it all over again, I would get the iPhone 15 Pro on the first day that it came out. Ah, like maybe, but, but probably not. Like, I just don't think anyone is going to lie on their deathbed and be like, babe, can you just bring my purse collection here to the hospital? I need to spend a little more time with them before I go. Uh, happiness is relational in nature. It's tied not to comfort or wealth or things, but to our connectedness to God and other people. And when we miss that, because the ship our culture calls happiness takes us in the direction of chasing stuff and pleasure. When we miss the idea that happiness is tied to people. 
And we convince ourselves God wants us to chase happiness the way our culture says to chase it. Then the tragic irony is we miss out on happiness because we miss out on God and his people. It's easy enough in that spot, though. But there's good news. Jesus actually told us how to be happy. If you're sitting near a Bible this morning, you can crack it open to the book of Matthew, chapter 5. This is what's going on. A whole huge crowd of people gathered around to listen to Jesus. And so he went up on a hillside and sat down. And as they gathered, he delivered probably the greatest sermon in the history of the world. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. And right at the very beginning, he gave the crowd eight keys to happiness. If you're a churchy person, you know those as the Beatitudes. And we can spend a whole Sunday on every single one of them. Sunday we will because they're profound. But today we're going to get a flyover view of all of them and some really practical handles on what Jesus is saying happiness is all about. And real quick before we dive in, the name Beatitudes is an English transliteration of the Latin word beati, which means happiness. And we give that title to this section because the Latin translation of the Bible used the word beati to translate the Greek word makarios, which is the the first word Jesus uses in each one of these observations he makes. In our English Bibles, we usually translate makarios blessed or blessed, but it literally means super happy. Interestingly enough, it was the phrase the Jews used in the first century to describe someone who was saved by God. So don't miss this in the Beatitudes. In each verse, Jesus is saying the heart of a saved person, of someone who's been captured by God and found true happiness, looks like this. And he kicks things off in verse 3 by saying, Blessed, makarios, happy, are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom in heaven, or kingdom of heaven. One question for us is like, what in the world does it mean to be poor in spirit? What it means is you embrace daily dependence on God for everything you need. It's about acknowledging you don't have the sufficient resources necessary to face all life's challenges on your own. Poverty of spirit has less to do with being materially wealthy or materially poor than it does recognizing absolutely everything you have comes from God and he's not just the source but the sustainer. Like without him, you're hopeless, no matter how wealthy or gifted you may be. In Greek, there are actually two words for poor. The first one refers to those who struggle financially, who have barely enough money to eat. In America, we call them med school students. But the second one Jesus uses here is tokos. It's actually an onomatopoeia, a word that sounds like what it describes. Tokos is meant to sound like spitting. That's what it meant. There's tokos, the gross, the useless, the outcast, the despised. Nobody's with nothing. Tokos. Our problem in the U.S. like relating to that is we rarely feel like that. We pay lip service to the idea God provides and we talk about trusting him for our daily bread. But deep down in our souls, we secretly want to be rich in spirit or at least like middle class in spirit. We want to feel like if God fails, we're going to be fine because our wealth and our stuff will save us and be enough. We desperately want to be self-sufficient and have no fear because we are in control of the situation. But if we believe that, if we put our faith and our trust in ourselves and our, and our stuff, ultimately we become proud, selfish, and ungrateful, and it robs our joy because it's an illusion. It's not true. Every breath we have and every step we take are gifts from God, whether we acknowledge that or not. And as we acknowledge it, as we come to him with empty hands, we find that God actually only fills empty hands. If our hands are are gripped tightly around our stuff, there's no room. But when we empty our hands and we come to God, he fills them with his goodness and his kingdom. And so if I could sum up what Jesus is saying here in a single phrase, it would be this. Happy people place their trust in the giver, not the gifts. Verse 4, Jesus says, 
Blessed, makarios, happy are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. And this one feels counterintuitive, right? Like mourning makes you happy, really, Jesus? But do you guys know who mourns? People who are relationally connected, emotionally stable, and self-aware. People who realize there's injustice, hurt, and pain in this world. People who understand death is a part of life, but instead of running away from it or trying to avoid it or numbing away that reality, they lean in to the intense sadness of all that. That's not a normal thing in our culture. Death is so sanitized for us. When there's a funeral, many of us try to get in and get out quick, go grab a drink on the way home to numb the pain. I don't even feel the slightest bit of sadness. We pull out our phones and then open up social media. We, we turn on Netflix, just some form of amusement. Amuse means without thinking. We amuse ourselves so that we don't have to think about the pain, so we can isolate ourselves from the hurt of all the people around us because we're scared. But the thing is, deep, intimate relationship creates the grounds for profound happiness and profound sadness. And when we're willing to actually connect and actually lean into the reality of a broken world, we find hope in the middle of that because we're able to connect and be happy, but also understand that the death and the pain don't get to write the end of our story. We serve a creator who's setting all things right and making all things new. And so if I could sum up this verse in one sentence, it would be happy people. Don't let the fear of death rob them of the joy of living. Verse 5 says, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. This one feels wimpy. I just, I, this is my least favorite one, and it has been my whole life, mostly because I just struggle to wrap my mind around what the word meek means. I think most of us have this like universally negative reaction to it. It's just not on the list. It's like, when I grow up, I want to be meek. And dads, let's be straight. None of us are looking at our daughters saying, sweetheart, could you just find a meek man to marry? No! I want to be strong and protect her and have a job and stuff. Like, get going. And we, just, we think of meekness as weakness, maybe because they rhyme, but that's not what it means. The word Jesus is using here is closer to humility. It means having a proper picture of yourself in terms of the broader context of the entire universe, of, of God's creation and God's love. It's self-awareness that you're part of God's creation and that God's up to something, but you're not the center of it. The world doesn't revolve around you. It's saying this whole thing, life, is... It's not about me. I'm not aiming my life in the direction of getting more fans, more followers, more likes, more for me. God created me and he gifted me. And I'm not trying to be or do anything other than what he made me to be and invited me to do for the sake of those around me. I'm 100% at peace. I know who God is and who I am. I know that I am loved. And I know that he's got me. So simply put, happy people embrace humility. And Jesus continues in verse 6, Happy are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. There are so many things in this world we hunger and thirst for. Fame, love, sex, approval, money. But it's those who hunger and thirst for righteousness that are going to be satisfied. Because there's a hole in our heart we're trying to fill with all those other things that can actually only be filled by God. And chasing Him leaves us happy, or chasing the world leaves us empty. And like... We all know that. We've tried it. We've chased the world and we've only ever ended up empty. Like, think for a second about your greatest regrets in life, your worst moments, the one you just wish you could erase or bury or hide so nobody ever found out about them. I'd be willing to bet 
most of the things you're thinking about right now happened in a situation where you knew the right thing and chose the wrong thing. And your conscience and, and the wounds of your consequences still haunt you. And please understand, like we talked about last week, forgiveness, the cross and the blood of Jesus Christ counts for you and it's complete. Embrace it and live in it. But what Jesus is saying here is, look, I know this may not be popular and may sound super religious and all that, but your happiness is actually tied to your behavior. And if you're chasing holiness, you're going to find happiness on the other side of it because you won't be haunted by the scars of moments you ought to have avoided. You can say it like this, happy people live with a clear conscience. Verse 7 says, blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. I actually think this is the easiest one to understand and the hardest to put into practice on a deep soul level. Jesus is saying, happiness is found in being relationally generous, in giving the people around us what they don't deserve. Happiness is found in deciding, I'm not going to seek revenge. I'm not going to allow myself to be bitter. I will not hold a grudge. And we know Jesus is right about this because you have never in your life met a happy, bitter person. You haven't because they don't exist. But you have and I have met people who've had terrible things done to them. They've been deeply wounded and come out the other side happy because they decided, look, God reached down into my brokenness when I didn't deserve it at all. And he extended grace and mercy to me. And so I can be like him by doing the same to, to my father to my boss, to my husband, to my ex-wife. Because hatred is the poison we drink, hoping it'll hurt somebody else. But the deeper we hold on to bitterness, the deeper bitterness holds on to us. And Jesus promises when we release it, we'll be set free. The simple truth is, happy people forgive generously. Happy people forgive generously. The next key to happiness, let me warn you real quick, this one is super offensive. When I sit with people in counseling meetings and point it out, they don't always like it. It's dangerous. But Jesus says in verse 8, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. And he kind of baits us with this one. He's like, you want to see God? You want to see life so clearly. You can notice where God's at work in the world. You want to be able to recognize his plans for you. You want to live with that type of clarity? Sweet. Here's how. Pure hearts. This is an uncomfortable truth for many of us. You cannot chase God and tolerate sin. Now, some of us have been trying. We got our little pet sins. We know we're wrong. And we're attempting to convince ourselves they're not that bad and it's all going to be okay. And they don't really cut us off from God. And then we complain like, oh, it's just like hard to see God. I don't know how to follow his will. And like following Jesus is really difficult sometimes. I just wish I had more clarity about what I'm supposed to do. But the darkness there is in our souls way more than it's in him. In my experience as a pastor, I see this all the time. People want to talk and their life's all jacked up and they ask, how did I not see it coming? And I've been in that same boat. I've asked that question. How did I not see it coming? And, and here's the answer. And it's sometimes offensive. Well, Jesus talked about that. You didn't see it coming because your heart wasn't pure enough to see it coming. Like Jesus called us to chase holiness because it leads to happiness. And he invites us to purity in the middle of a culture that doesn't even use that word unless we're talking about water. Because this is like such a lame, old-fashioned idea. It means we miss out, right? On the things the world says are so awesome, even though God says they're impure. You guys, seeing the presence and movement of God in the world is not missing out on anything. It's truly living. And that's what purity, moral, ethical, relational, holistic purity affords us. I don't have to experience everything to understand it. It's frustrating because... Not enough people out there in the world are calling us to this or reminding us of it, but please get it today. 
If you want a bigger, better picture of who God is and who he made you to be, if you want to live fully, understand, happy people know that purity leads to clarity. Purity leads to clarity. So it's worth pursuing. Verse 9 says, Happy are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Let's be honest, the world's full of jerks. Maybe you got one sitting next to you right now. Don't point at them. Like, I can't, I can't see you, but just, just don't do it. Every married person is at least nodding. Maybe they're pointing because I can't see them. Uh, and I, the truth is we're, we're fallen and we're selfish, so we're going to have conflict. And there are almost always at least two sides in a conflict who both feel they're right, and neither one can make peace if being right is what matters most, if personal vindication is necessary. But Jesus says, check it out, God makes peace. God doesn't wait for peace or hope for peace or give the other person dirty looks or a cold shoulder or a piece of his mind until they make peace. No, God makes peace. Because the cross was God making peace with a world in rebellion that was wrong, even though he was right. But his rightness didn't cloud out his love. Jesus says we'll be called children of God and we can imitate him in that. We can become reconcilers. I'd sum this one up like this. Happy people value relationships more than being right. They're willing to set aside being right to maintain the depth of their connection. Happy people value relationships more than being right. The last one is verse 10. Makarios are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is one where you read it and you're like, ah, time out, what? I'm... For a lot of us, maybe we're tracking with Jesus up to this point, but we, we stopped dead in our tracks right here. Blessed and persecuted do not go together. They're antonyms, not synonyms. Jesus is clearly confused if that's how he uses them, isn't he? What he's telling us is that happiness is found in prioritizing being right with God and chasing his will and his purpose above all things. I have a post-it note on the wall above my desk that sums it up. It's a prayer. Lord, your will, nothing more, nothing less nothing else. Amen. That's what Jesus is talking about in this verse. And you know what? Here's something we're all going to discover. If you haven't already, you will soon. At some point, you will suffer. That's life in a shattered world. And you're either going to suffer for doing right or for doing wrong. You'll suffer for one of those two things, but you can only be happy while suffering for doing right. Because you'll have peace in your soul that this is not the end that you're chasing God so your suffering does not get to write the final chapter of your story. And the peace God gives you in the middle of that changes everything. Because happy people hold on to hope in the middle of brokenness. Happy people are hopeful people. So I just want to invite you this morning to be happy, truly happy, because I think God dreamed you up and knit you together to be happy. To do it, though, you'll have to burn the ship our culture calls happiness. You'll have to walk away from our societal belief that happiness is found in chasing whatever you want, in seeking comfort and pleasure and wealth. And you have to remember, happiness is always associated with a who and not a what. It's relational. It's found in connection to God and his people. In John 15, Jesus said, I'm the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Happiness is the fruit that grows in our lives when we're connected to the vine. That's the path forward. That's how we get from here to the beauty God has waiting out ahead of us. We burn the ship that tells us happiness can be found by sailing away from the lives God says we were made for and realize happiness is a byproduct of a life aimed toward chasing him. 
It's not a goal in and of itself. It's, in, it's an outcome. It's a byproduct of life. Live the way it was meant to be lived. And if you live like that, that doesn't mean things will always be easy and you'll never experience pain. They won't and you will. But you can have a different perspective when you find yourself in that spot. The kind of happiness we were made for, the kind that allows us to move forward and pursue the meaning and the goodness and the story God wants to write in our lives comes from knowing who God is and who he made us to be. It comes from living into his love and sharing it with the people around us. So does God want you to be happy? Absolutely, unequivocally, yes. But the only way to get there is his way. And I think if we get this one right, if we can burn that ship, if we can stop chasing the mirage of happiness the world is throwing in front of us and instead walk the radically countercultural path of Jesus, we'll find not only freedom and joy and meaning and fullness like never before in our own lives, but we'll be able to radiate it into the unhappy dark that surrounds us in a way that's incredibly compelling to a world desperately searching for the kind of happiness we've found. Will you just pray with me? God, thank you. Thank you for who you are. Thank you for the way that you love us. Thank you for the way that you offer us real, meaningful, lasting happiness and joy and peace in the middle of a shattered world. Would you help us today? Would you help us this week? Would you help us in 2024 burn that ship our culture calls happiness, the one that sails toward things and possessions and wealth and everything else that leaves us empty because it's not aimed in the direction of holiness and the lives you said we were created for. And would you help us move forward and become more of who you created and called us to be so that we can live more fully alive and we can radiate that fullness into a world desperately searching for what we've found. We praise in Jesus' name. Amen.